welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Epic Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And today on the show, we're talking about rent control. Oh, this is dun, a, dun, dun. It's a sad topic. I'm getting up on my soapbox, oh, ready oh, to so talk. So we were having a behind-the-scenes chat about this as we do before we dive into it, and I tell you what, I've never seen Ed as more of a preacher. He was waving his hands about, flapping about and the thing, and then he came up with a song. Go on. <laughs> Hey, Cindy, leave those rents alone. <laughs> so yeah, buckle in because this one's going to be a ride. So this comes from a listener of the show, Serena, who says, hey, can you do an episode on rent control? I personally think that if the government introduces some form of rent control, that landlords will increase rent by the maximum allowable every single year, rather than acting with goodwill, trying to give their tenants a bit of a rent break. But let me ask you this, Andrew, why are we talking about rent control right now? Well, this just seems to be a hot topic in the newspapers at the moment. There's been several articles about this. One of my investors rang me just before we jumped on this recording to talk about the Greens. An article today of the Greens were proposing this. And I'm going to read to you from a memo from the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development, which was released. And the final point of the document says this. The Treasury advice noted that rent control measures could be drafted to offset or limit negative impacts of adjustment to tax policy changes on rent prices. If the government introduces a temporary rent control, this could incentivize more investors to sell. Well, let me ask you this, Andrew. Where do rents currently sit against household incomes and have they changed over time? What I'm really asking, I guess, is do we have a problem right now with rents and incomes? So no, not really. Rent versus income is surprisingly consistent. So over the last 16 years, the amount of rent that a household would pay makes up between 24 to 27% of their gross income. Now, that's a bit different from some of the articles that you've read around there. So it Absolutely. is different based on where you are. So for instance, in Auckland and Gisborne, rents are relatively high. And so that figure, rent as a proportion of household income, sits around that 40% mark. But so are incomes, whereas I would have thought that Wellington might have been a higher percentage, you know? No, but Wellington's got high levels of incomes yes. because government. young people there may be renters, but then you've got well-paid government jobs. The mm. downside of that is government jobs don't tend to increase increase in terms of the amount that you earn over time as much. So Ed, do you think we're at a crisis point? I personally don't, though I certainly acknowledge that there are going to be some renters out there who, in the Housing and Urban Development Ministry's advice, which we're going to deep dive into tomorrow, talks about stressed renters. So there are 100% people out there that earn relatively low incomes, and perhaps because of their personal situations, may require larger homes. So, you know, if you've got a couple of kids and you're on relatively low incomes, it is going to be quite difficult to pay increased rent. But I also have to acknowledge, and I don't want people to think this is too heartless, that when you decide to rent a house, you do that of your own volition. If you live in a region that has very expensive housing, your option or your alternative is to always move to some place that has relatively more affordable housing. Now, of course, there are considerations around job, culture and family, but of course, nobody is forcing you to rent a particular house. Renting is a necessity. Having shelter is a necessity, but you always have a decision whether it's really conscious or not about where you decide to live. And I do think that it's important to make that, even though I fully recognise some people think that's quite a heartless position to take. 
mate, one thing I do want to say is that the data also changes based on who you listen to. So when I ran the data using Infometrics income data and just advertised rents, it did hover around that 24 to 27% mark at a national level. But when I went to Renters United's website, an organisation that is arguing for rent control, that is representing tenants, they show a graph that between 2010 and 2020, rents were increasing, according to their data, much faster than wage growth. So I can totally understand that when an organisation, I know Stuff published the same graph, people can look at this and say, well, what are Ed and Andrew talking about? That's not the one that I saw in Stuff. So why is it different, Ed? Well, often it'll be because you're using different data sets or different data periods. So when I look at the data from 2005 up to 2021, you see that it's pretty consistent. But there was a drop of the amount that households were spending on rent between 2005 and 2010. So rents got a bit cheaper between those five years. But of course, they've leveled out. So they've increased relative to 2010. So if your starting point is 2010, you'd say, well, rents have increased faster than wage growth. But if you say, well, my starting point is actually earlier than that, my starting point is 2005, then you'd be like, well, they've been relatively the same. It also depends if you're using the same data sets. So they're looking at specifically wage growth. So I haven't specifically asked them what data they're using, but what they're saying, it's wage growth. Now that's different between salary and wage growth, which is what I was using. How does that differ? Well, typically relatively poorer households, which to be fair, you could say may tend to be more renters, they're more likely to be earning wages as opposed to salaries. But when I was renting and still am, I've always been on salary. So it would be unfair to say that only people who earn wages tend to be renters. But there could be an argument that perhaps wages haven't increased as fast as salaries. And because of that, you may see it lag behind. So there's a bit of data selection here. But there's some other interesting things that Renters United are doing, which I'm sure people will have seen as well. Yeah, I had a chuckle at this because Ed's actually gone to the Renters United website and prepared a fake rent bill. And so you can go onto the website and you punch in your information. And this goes to the Honourable Poto Williams, who's the Minister of Building and Construction. And it produces this basically an invoice that says, Dear Minister, I'm writing to you today because my rent is out of control. Exclamation point. <laughs> My rent has increased by $50 per week. That's 2600 a year that I would otherwise be using to buy healthier food. That was the default, by the way. Right. Were there other options or can you put in whatever no, you want? No, no, you can put in whatever you want. So you can put in to buy cigarettes or something like that. Despite the years of escalating rents, especially here in Christchurch in this case, your government has taken no meaningful action to prevent renters from getting stiffed by their landlords. It's time to make things right for all renters who have suffered outrageous rental increases for the last four years. You're sincerely Ed McKnight. The other thing you can do is also add on a health text. So they've said that renting in New Zealand can take a serious toll on your mental and physical health. Would you like to use a health tax on your bill or include that? So I've included $3,600, which again was that. I don't think that would go far with your mental health. The reason for including this that I wanted to point out was the fact that there's a lot of emotive language around this yes. and it's very easy to argue for rental controls because an outraged, loud minority can, you know, in some cases point to some really sad things or some really stressed renters and say, that's the life for everyone. But that's not the life for everyone. And actually, Ministry of Housing and Urban Development Advice talked about that there are lots of different 
categories of renters, you know, some are in the position where they're able to purchase their own home. In fact, 25% of renters currently are estimated to have the incomes to be able to afford the mortgage to purchase a home. Well, I rented for the vast majority of my adult life. I think um, you had quite a good idea out of deal as well. Yeah, and I had a great deal. I was paying like $500 a week for an inner city apartment, spacious apartment. I had no reason to go and buy a house other than Lauren making me. And now, you know, you own a house and you've got to pay all those other costs like rates and insurance and Yuri to come and mow the lawn, all of that stuff you've got to pay yourself. And some of the other things that I want to talk about is, well, what does the economic theory tell us might happen when rent controls are implemented? And the main one is that fewer properties are likely to be available for tenants. So anybody who's currently living in a property is already renting a property is probably going to be okay because depending how they're implemented, there may be a maximum increase per year. Now that encourages people to hold on to these properties very, very tightly because the underlying market rate of course, would be higher than that of what they're paying. So they're going to hold on to them. Now, because of that, you get a less dynamic rental market. That has many benefits, which I'm going to get into. But the key thing is it really punishes anybody who doesn't currently have a property that they are renting. So anybody who's currently 16 thinking about going off to university, if some form of rent control comes in, it's going to be really difficult for you to be able to go and rent a place with your friends because if there are only so many rental properties that are available on the market at any one time, those are going to become very competitive. Landlords are going to start cherry picking from the people who are potentially seen as lower risk. So people who perhaps are older in life have more stable incomes than students. So it really harms people who don't currently have properties that they're renting. Similarly, if you're going to have to change cities, find a new rental property in a new region, you're going to be disadvantaged because that's going to be really hard. And what you tend to have is a less dynamic labour market. You have a less dynamic rental market where people are able to then go and find properties that are the best fit for them because people are so worried about holding on to what they've currently got. I'd assume that actually this makes it a real challenge because say I stayed in a property, renting a property, a two-bedroom townhouse for five years, and then my partner and I decide, okay, we're going to have a child and we need a three-bedroom house, and I've only had a CPI adjustment for the last five years. Now, if I go and rent a new three-bedroom house, then that's probably going to be let out at a much higher rate because no one's in it at the moment and it's a new tenancy, so they can charge whatever they want. Well, this is where Renters United are trying to come in and say, well, no, 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 we're only going to allow CPI increases between tenancies as well. So overseas when this has happened, you've had the ability to adjust that rent to the more market rate. But what Renters United are trying to do is artificially lower rents over time to try and change that. Now, this sort of market manipulation, in my view is so self-defeating. Again, it benefits a loud minority of people who currently rent properties at the expense of people who potentially would come into the market in the future. Let's say we expand our population and we need more properties because we've got more people who need to rent. Well, if you've put rent controls in 
and you're saying, well, rents can't increase as demand and supply changes, that makes it really hard to expand the number of rental properties on the market. So again, those people coming in, our new New Zealanders who are going to join our population are going to be disadvantaged because the market has been manipulated to the benefit of people who already have that. And I think that's always the key thing. It's hard to argue against rent controls because we're talking about people who aren't in the market yet. We're talking about benefits that we can't receive yet because people aren't here. And certainly some of the really bad things we see when rent controls are introduced is you see a strange misallocation of resources. So for instance, in America, we've seen empty nesters who used to have five or six people living in that house, a couple and four children, they'll hang on to those apartments rather than letting them go once their children leave home because the rent is artificially low. Similarly, you might see a big family living in a minuscule apartment because again, they're trying to hang on to that low rented apartment, even though it makes sense for those two families to switch in that instance readjust their rent to the market level. That would be the right allocation of resources, but they're not able to do that because the price signals, Andrew, are messed up. The price signals have been muddied. And that's the key thing. People think that price is a bad thing within markets, but actually it is the great leveller. It says that you can then go and purchase something that you want given a certain price. And I don't think that it's a bad thing to have this. Changing prices are a feature of markets. Sing it, sister. (laughs) You know, and leave our rents alone. (laughs) And I think that's definitely the case. And one of the things we have to accept is that, hey, some bad things are going to happen when we have free markets. There are going to be people who unfortunately don't earn enough to afford a specific type of property. Perhaps, you know, they're in some pretty bad situations. But you've also got to remember that some of this is for a greater good of that we've got a market that operates well, that we're able to move cities and still be able to rent places and not have the fear that we're unable to rent somewhere because everybody's holding on onto these really tightly. A dynamic market benefits many, many people. The other thing that I really want to talk about that we saw specifically in San Francisco was we saw a lot of conversions. So when we had rent control, a lot of investors were transitioning or converting their small apartments, which they previously used for rental accommodation, and they transferred them into what's called condominiums. So really high-end owner-occupier accommodation, because it was much more profitable to merge a whole heap of small apartments, turn it into a really nice, spacious, high-end condo, and sell it to the owner-occupier market. So you saw quite a number of these properties, rental accommodations being then converted into high-end owner-occupier accommodation. Now, the effect of that is that some of those areas which used to have renters now have only very, very rich people who own their own homes. So the quickest way to create a whole heap of ponts and bees around New Zealand (laughs) is to have rent control because that rental accommodation would be combined. You might see townhouses that used to be available for rental accommodation have their walls knocked down and then people would have very large owner-occupier homes potentially in that time because those properties would be converted into the use where they'd be able to get a decent return. The other thing you see, Andrew, and I know I'm on my soapbox now, is that any rental properties that are 
held and held as rental accommodation, because they aren't generating a market-led return, you often see that they are very poorly maintained. And that's because the landlord isn't able to maintain it and feel good about that because well, they know they, they're, they're, they don't have the money to. Or they're not getting a return on investment. And the tenants are going to stay anyway. Yes. And so you do have these obscure effects because you are trying to obscure price signals. And then what happened? So they took away these rent controls after 24 years. In 1994, what happened after that? I believe rents increased by about 45% to back, back to their to market level. Been. And so that's the thing. You can't stop the market occurring. You might be able to put a dam up, but the water's going to come flooding when it rips down. And just one last thing that I want to talk about. What's really important, especially in today's society, <laughs> is that you're getting your source of information from any source which you consider to be relatively unbiased. And that's going to be different from everybody listening to this show. Some of you will listen to Fox News and some of you will listen to CNN <laughs> and some of you will listen to, you know, whatever you happen to listen to. For me, I am in love with The Economist, which is a newspaper in the United Kingdom that reports from all around the world. And for me, they are the gold standard of journalism. And I was just reading that in March, they reported a story with the subline or the title, A Disaster Foretold. After a year, Berlin experiment with rent control is an absolute failure. So Berlin about 12 months ago implemented some forms of rent control and in fact there they have forced in some cases rents to be decreased. Wow. Now I expect this to be repealed because in Germany there are a few large companies which own significant numbers of properties and they run this as a very professional business. Now there are currently Supreme Court challenges against these rent controls because the shareholders of these businesses are quite clearly getting a raw deal because rents are being changed and rents are being unfairly kept down, in my view, below their market level. And so there again, you've seen a significant decrease in the supply of rentals, making it harder for people to get a rental property. They've said rents may be down, but so is the supply of homes. And again, I just think what's really important, if anything to take away from this, is that rent controls may benefit a small portion of society. So people who currently live in properties that already have rental accommodation and who don't need to change it. So aren't planning to move, aren't planning to have a change in circumstances where they need to find a bigger property or want to downsize. It benefits the status quo over tomorrow. And again, I think that's the key thing to do. If you believe, as I do, that our better days are ahead of us and that we need to change it, that we need to adapt, then you will argue against rent controls. If you believe that people should be able to change properties without fear of massively increasing rents because they then have to face a market reality, I think that's the important thing. Then you'd be against rent controls as well. We're going to keep talking about this because clearly there's a lot to say. But what I do want to say is please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the Property Academy podcast. Guys, it really does help us get the message out to more people. And if like Serena, you have a topic that you'd like us to talk about, whip out your phone, 5522. That's our number. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Emma Knight. I'm Andrew Nichols. We're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics, and insights to help you get the most of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.